Yeah, I'm not used to that. They gave me hype music to come out to. That's awesome. Really good to see you guys. Um, yeah, it was a great time our family had the last couple of weeks. Cindy's folks took us on an epic adventure in New Zealand. Beautiful, beautiful place. It's summer in New Zealand, but still it is bitter cold, at least in the South Island of New Zealand. And so we were really looking forward to coming back home to Hawaii to get warm. Yeah, that didn't work. Thought we would pack away our flannels and jackets. We dug them back out. We've been shivering the last few days. So you're welcome. We brought that cold weather with us back from New Zealand. Um, so I'm not super stoked about the weather, but I am super stoked to be getting into this study of Joshua. This is such a great book, and it was so awesome to have Pastor Christian back last week. He launched that study for us of this guy who most people don't know really anything about, because like Christian mentioned, he's the successor to Moses. Everybody knows Moses, and usually when you have a big, authoritative, dynamic character, the successor nobody really pays attention to. So Joshua's like, like the band that came after the Beatles in whatever music festivals they were in. Nobody paid attention to them. It's like the movie that comes after Die Hard in the film festival. Everybody knows Die Hard's the best movie that was ever made, right? So it's like that movie. You're just not gonna pay attention to it. And so for most people, if you know anything about Joshua, it's probably because you grew up in the church. And especially if you're a dude, I guarantee at some point your life verse was Joshua 1.9, right? Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Every dude is like, yes, that is me, strong and courageous. And then somebody was like, well, okay, you, you wanna share your testimony in front of the group? And every dude was like, oh, God. yeah, I think I'm good. We, we think we wanna be strong and courageous like Joshua, but we don't really know much about Joshua. And the truth is, a lot of us don't really live like Joshua. We wanna be strong and courageous, and that is such a big mission for us in our day and age. But do you know what made Joshua strong and courageous? Here's really the only thing you need to know about Joshua. He trusted God and followed God. That's all you need to know. That's all we see in this book, is Joshua putting one foot in front of the other every day, following what God says, doing what God says. That's it. And that's all that God wants from any of us. We're gonna see that today in Joshua chapter two. If you got your Bible, open to Joshua chapter two. And along this story, what we're gonna see through this whole book is Joshua being faithful to God because God is faithful to his people. That's the theme of this book. That's the theme of the whole Old Testament. That's why most Old Testament books, at least the narrative books, start with the word and. Have you ever noticed that? as you're reading through the Old Testament, almost every one of the early books in the Old Testament begins with the word and, because every book, including this book, Joshua, is just one little chapter in this epic story of God's faithfulness to his people. No matter what happens, God is always faithful to his people. Here, we're talking about his people, Israel. And back in Genesis, he promised them land in Palestine. Here in Joshua, he's gonna give them that land. And in God's sovereignty, it just so happens that right now, all of us are thinking about land in Palestine. We planned this series a year ago almost, and so we had no idea that all of us were going to be wondering, what is the deal with Gaza and land in Palestine? Who has a right to that land? That's what everybody's asking right now. There's Christians on both sides of that question. There's solid Christians who believe that all of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament still apply to Israel today. 
There's other very solid Christians who believe that God's promises to the spiritual kingdom of Israel 3,000 years ago don't extend to the secular state of Israel now. There's people in our church on both sides of that debate. There's elders in our church on both sides. So you can debate that over lunch. We'll let you settle that later in another place. But here's what you cannot debate. You cannot debate the fact that God is faithful to his people. He's always faithful to his people. And what we're going to see here in chapter 2 is that his people really includes a lot of people we never would have expected to be his people. So look at what happens. Joshua 2, we're going to start right at the beginning, verse 1. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. And so they left, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Okay, so Israel is on the doorstep of the promised land. They're hiding out in this Acacia Grove just across the Jordan River from the promised land. Joshua decides to send two spies into the promised land, probably because God commanded him to. So these spies go into Jericho to scout out the land. Here's the thing. Joshua doesn't need these spies because God already guaranteed him victory over Jericho. There's no reason he needs any intelligence about Jericho. There must be another reason that God wants to send these spies into Jericho. Keep going in verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. And that right there tells you that these spies are not very good spies, okay? They've been in town a couple of hours and their cover is already blown. These guys were not chosen because they're James Bond and Jason Bourne. They must have another mission. Verse three. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. And he said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they've come to investigate the entire land. That's an order from the king. If Rahab doesn't follow it, she'll be executed. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the two men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. Yeah, that's a lie right there. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I didn't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly. You can catch up with them. And there's another lie right there. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. Oh, come I, this one. Rahab is a better spy than either of those two spies. She knows what she's doing. It says, verse 7, the men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. Did you notice what she called God? In our translation, it says the Lord. In the original Hebrew, that's Yahweh his personal name. This is the name that God's kids use for him. She says in verse 10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Guess what? That happened 40 years before this. People have been talking about this God, Yahweh, for decades. We heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. Those are their cousins the Amorites on the other side of the river. And so they keep hearing about what this God Yahweh is doing and look at the effect that has. Verse 11, when we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because of you. 
For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Are you hearing what this Gentile woman is saying? For most people in Jericho, what they've heard about God has driven them to fear. For Rahab, it's driven her to faith. And that's crazy. I mean, Rahab is an Amorite. Amorites are singled out in Scripture for being exceptionally evil people. I mean, these are people who sacrificed babies to their gods regularly, like every day. Also, Rahab is a prostitute, which, by the way, is probably why the two spies decided to stay with her. I mean, think about it. Where else could they go as strangers in this city where nobody would ask them any questions about why they are there? That's not why they're here, but everybody else assumes that's why they're there. Every guy in town knows Rahab's house. So you got to ask yourself, how is it that this Gentile Amorite prostitute understands so much about God? She doesn't have a Bible. There's not any missionaries who've been sent to Jericho. I mean, the Israelites... They don't want anybody besides them to be even worshiping God. They want God all to themselves. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Rahab, she's in a completely unreached people group. So how would she have heard all about this God, Yahweh, and come to know and respect and love this God, Yahweh? Well, she probably heard about this God, Yahweh, from all the men who visited her house. All these strangers who came through Jericho from across the Jordan and told her all about what they saw, what they heard on the other side of the river. Is it good that Rahab is a prostitute? No. But we know from Romans 8 that God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. All things. And all things includes our sin which would include all the lies that Rahab's been telling. Lie after lie after lie. And I know some people think that God excuses sin that accomplishes good, right? She told all these lies to save lives. Isn't that a good thing? That's what a lot of people think. Well, 25 years ago, uh, Cindy and I had a friend who was a missionary in this closed country. And at that time, Christians in that country weren't even allowed to have Bibles. You'd be thrown in prison if you were caught with a Bible. But they needed Bibles, desperately. And so our friend asked us to come over for a week and smuggle Bibles in to to these Christians in these house churches that he was leading. So we spent a week there, crossing the border in different places in different ways every single day, always with Bibles in our bags. But here's what he told us on the very first day. He said, remember, if you ever get interrogated by a guard, remember that God is sovereign. You don't need to lie. You don't need to lie. Just Ask the question back to him. If he asks, if you have Bibles, just say, do I have Bibles? Just ask it over and over and he'll wave you through. He'll get so frustrated. He'll just wave you through. So first day we went through, no problem. Second day we went through. Third day we went through, no problem. Finally, on the fourth day, a guard stopped me. He said, what do you have in your bag? I said, oh, some books. He said, do you have Bibles in there? I said, Bibles? He waved me through, (laughs) just like that. Oh, All right, awesome. Rahab didn't have to lie to accomplish God's purpose. She didn't have to. God is a lion. 
He's a lion. And like Charles Spurgeon said, you don't need to defend a lion. Just let the lion loose. He'll defend himself. Well, Rahab doesn't understand that yet because she's just started the messy process of being saved. That's what we're seeing right here, is Rahab being saved. And now we understand why God really wanted these spies to go to Jericho. It's so that he could show off his sovereign grace, so that he could save someone who shouldn't be saved. It's kind of like when Jesus saved the Samaritan woman by the well. Said in John 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Had to. Not because that was the only route he could take, not because it was the best route to take. It's because he was on a mission to save someone who nobody wanted to be saved. And that's what's happening here in Joshua. That's what's happening right here. We thought this story was going to be a story just about war and conquest. And it is. God is going to wipe out this people, the Amorites, who have been killing babies and raping women and abusing slaves. But it is really important to notice that the very first story in this book isn't a story about God's wrath. It's a story about his grace. It's a story about his grace. Here's this unrighteous, ungodly, uncivilized woman living in the most violently wicked culture you could imagine. And she's come to believe in the one true God, Yahweh. Family, if she can be saved, anybody can be saved. I don't know who it is you know who you think could never be saved. This story is proving you wrong. And and her spiritual salvation is going to be signified by her physical salvation. Look at what she says in verse 12. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you'll also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father, mother, brother, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. Rahab knows that God's wrath is coming. And so she is laying herself down, begging God's representatives for mercy. Because it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to know about his power, about his justice, about his mercy. What you know about God has to travel from your head down to your heart. And when it does, the only response you could have is to ask God for his mercy and grab hold of his love. That's what Rahab's doing right now. And guess what? God responds to that. He will always respond to that. Look at verse 14. The man answered her, we will give our lives for yours. For this Gentile woman, we'll give our lives for you. If you don't report our mission, we'll show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Yeah, because God always shows kindness when we lean on his mercy. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we'll be free from this oath you made us swear unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Scarlet coming down from a window, kind of like the blood that came down from the doorpost during the Passover. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. 
And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. Because you can't try and play both sides. You can't be on God's team and the world's team at the same time. And Rahab knows that. Verse 21, let it be as you say, she replied. And she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So the two men went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers had returned. They searched all along the way, but did not find them. Then the men returned, came down from the hill country and crossed the Jordan. And they went to Joshua, son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. They told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. It's like the team coming into the final huddle, the last play of the game, and they have clinched the game. Quarterback's going, we got this, boys. These guys are strong and courageous. And it's all because of their experience with Rahab. Later on in the story, we're going to see Rahab delivered, just like the spies promised. We're going to see her adopted into the family of God. Later on, Rahab's going to marry an Israelite man. They're going to have a son named Boaz. Boaz is going to marry another Gentile girl named Ruth. Ruth is going to give birth to Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Rahab's great-great-great-great-grandson, is going to be the king of Israel. And then we'll find out from Matthew, a thousand years after that, her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is going to be the king of kings, Jesus. Rahab is one of the most important people in the whole Bible. She's one of the most important people in all of history. But here's the thing. She's not just a historical figure. Don't just see her as a character in a story. There's two big things you got to understand about Rahab. Number one, you are Rahab. You are Rahab. I know, maybe you think you're completely different from Rahab. I'm not what she is. Yeah, you're dead wrong about that. You are a sinner in need of a savior. You're Rahab. And you're living in Jericho. Most of us live pretty comfortable lives, just like the people in Jericho did. They have these nice big walls all around them, keeping them safe. You have smoke detectors that make you feel safe. You have insurance policies that make you feel safe. You have side curtain airbags that make you feel safe. But nothing can keep you safe from the justice of God. Rahab understood that, and so she threw herself on God's mercy, and you've got to do the same thing. You've got to throw yourself on God's mercy and grab hold of his love and grace that came through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's the only place where salvation comes from. You want to know where salvation doesn't come from? Salvation doesn't come from your integrity, from your behavior, from your actions. I know some people think if you do good, you'll receive good. Well, guess what? Rahab was a prostitute when she got saved. Rahab was an expert liar when she got saved. She deceived people easily and fluently, probably every day of her life. But God saved her and blessed her in spite of her action. Salvation doesn't come from your integrity. And also, salvation doesn't come from your family. I know some people think that they'll be saved, that they're going to go to heaven just because they come from a Christian family. 
Well, Rahab was an Amorite. She came from a family that was violently opposed to God. And God saved her anyways. So salvation doesn't come from integrity or family. Also, salvation doesn't come from your identity. Some people think they'll be saved if, if they identify as a Christian. That's what I put down on the census form. That's what I said on that survey that I filled out. Christian, evangelical Christian. That's what I put down. Okay, that's great. How often do you go to church? Well, once in a while. How often do you read your Bible and pray? Well, once in a while. How often do you serve and give? Once in a while. I don't, I don't really act like a Christian, but I identify as a Christian. Well, guess what? Rahab didn't. Rahab didn't. She's a Gentile, and God saved her anyways. God does not save you because of your integrity or your family or your identity. He only saves you because of his mercy. And that only comes through the perfect life and brutal death and glorious resurrection of his son, Jesus. Rahab knew that she needed God's mercy. So be like Rahab. Because you are Rahab. And then number two, you know Rahab. You know someone who shouldn't be saved. You know someone who is so far from God that if they said the kind of things that we heard Rahab say, God is God of heaven and on earth of my life. If they said something like that, you would have a heart attack. You'd never expect them to say something like that. Maybe it's somebody in your family who you've been praying for. Maybe you've been praying for years, maybe decades. Maybe it's one of your coworkers who, who's always mocking Christians. Just in some passive-aggressive way. Like whenever some idiot pastor gets himself into a scandal, they're the one who sends you the link to that because they know you're a Christian. I know maybe deep down, you don't even want that person to be saved. People like that don't deserve to be saved. People like that are like Amorite prostitutes. Maybe up until now, you thought your relationship with that person has nothing to do with God like the spies who thought they were just hiding out in this woman's house. Well, maybe God's gonna surprise you. Maybe he's gonna give you an opportunity to extend grace to that person, just like the spies extended grace to Rahab. Who knows what God's gonna do? Because nobody is beyond God's reach. Nobody is so far away that God's grace can't invade their life. So be ready. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Because we've seen from Rahab where salvation really comes from. Number one, salvation comes from hearing. Rahab heard about the mighty works of God. What have your family and friends heard about God? What do your coworkers and classmates know about God? Have they heard about the mighty works of God that have been done in your life? Have you ever told them about that? Salvation comes from hearing what God has done for his people. And then also, salvation comes from conviction. Because after Rahab heard about God, she developed some convictions about God. She said, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She felt convicted that God is powerful and God is just and God is merciful. So what do your family and friends feel about God? What do they feel about God? Apathy? 
disdain, anger? How can you help them develop respect towards God, love for God? Because salvation comes from hearing and conviction. And then salvation comes from relationship. That's what we saw in this story, a relationship forming. These Israelite men shouldn't have had that relationship, not according to custom. They shouldn't have had long, drawn-out conversations with Gentile women who also happen to be prostitutes. But they were giving us a preview of the ministry of Jesus who was a friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. So what kind of friends do you have? What kind of friends do you have? Are they clean, respectable, upstanding people? Or are they the kind of friends that Jesus had? I read an article this week by a social scientist who said that in America, Christianity has now become a luxury good. Christianity is a luxury good. Most people in the church today are college-educated, upper-middle-class, white-collar people. Most poor and working-class people are flooding out of the church right now. And so Christianity, Jesus, has just become another luxury good to put alongside your luxury bag as you ride in your luxury car. Family, that cannot stand. That cannot stand. That's why we are working and praying so hard at Harbor Church to be a place of refuge and redemption and resurgence for all people and all kinds of people because we know that God is in the process of saving all kinds of people. Because here's the thing, God's vision for the church has never been small. It's never been small. When God first called Abraham back in Genesis 12, he said, you're gonna be the father of many nations. He said, you're gonna have spiritual sons and daughters who outnumber the grains of sand on the beach. When God established the first church in Acts 2, he launched it with 3,000 people who all got saved and baptized on the same day. A couple months later, when God first multiplied the church, it's because he had just saved 5,000 more people and they couldn't fit them all. There was no place they could all meet together, not even the temple courtyard, so they had to start planting churches so they could still be together. God's vision for the church has never been small. Make sure you get that straight. God's plan was never to establish small little inward group of people that only welcomes people who look right and behave right and believe right. God's plan has always been to save people we never would have expected. Thousands and thousands of people we never would have expected. And then to bring all those people together in churches that are growing and multiplying. That's why we have this vision we're calling 1-100. 1-100. What if all of us committed to reach one more person with the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Just one. And then one. And then one. Just one more. And what if so many people came to faith that we had to plant 100 more churches just to fit all of these people? They're not gonna fit in here. Where else could they fit but to plant more churches? And then what if all of those churches saw so many people come to faith that 1% of Hawaii put their trust in Jesus? 
1% of the population of Hawaii was saved. A century and a half ago, 90% of the population of Hawaii was attending church every day, uh, every week. That number now is 5%. 5%. And so what if, what if we all prayed and served and gave with the goal that we would see 1% of Hawaii saved by Jesus and deeply engaged with the family of Jesus? In a few weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to give specifically towards that vision. And so I want you to start praying now. Start praying this week about how big of a part God might have for you in that vision. Because God's vision for the church has never been small. And I've got to tell you guys, in the 18 years since we planted this church, I have never been more excited and hopeful than I am right now about that kind of vision. We've seen God do amazing things in this church. God multiplied our little church into five churches across Oahu. Amazing things God has done. But you know what? From what I'm seeing right now, he was just getting warmed up. This week, we're launching a new cohort of potential church planners. We want to see five more churches planted in the next few years. I think it might happen. God is in the business of doing amazing things, and I fully believe the best is yet to come. Because Rahab said it, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And family, I am convinced that we are going to see him prove that in some mind-blowing ways. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for this amazing little story in this epic book, a book of battle and war and conquest and justice, where you start out with love mercy and grace and compassion. Thank you, Lord, for the love, grace, mercy, and compassion that you poured out on us. Bring us into your family. But Lord, there's always room for one more. You always talked about the one lost coin, the one lost sheep, the one lost son. And we just saw how you went out of your way to save one Gentile woman. Lord, would you stir the same love and compassion in us towards the people around us? Help us to be so floored by the grace we have in Jesus that we just can't stop ourselves from sharing it with the one more who you've put in our lives. Thank you for all we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.